0: Hello and welcome back to Building Wealth on the Go, a podcast by KLT Wealth Management. Today is August 22nd, 2022, and we are back with Season 3, Episode 11 of our podcast. I'm your host, Brad Wilson, and joined by my colleagues, Joe Filiomeni and Courtney Beach. In today's episode, we're going to be diving deeper into three sectors of the economy and of the markets and uh, discussing them a little bit further in detail, uh, what's going on with them this year, uh, some, maybe some historical details on them. Uh, and uh, shedding some light on, on what exactly the importance of these sectors, what they mean and, uh, and what what they're up to these days. So uh, without further ado, I think we should start with a sector that has been hit hard this year, um, one that rode the waves through COVID um, really well uh, was the technology sector. So Joe, do you want to talk a little bit about what the uh, tech sector has for us there?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, when, when you talk about the the tech sector, there's really two trains of thoughts. There, the tech sector is either in, impenetrable or irrational. And, and and that is so true um, because uh, we've seen it. We've seen we've seen the like crazy valuations in the tech sector. And, um, and and that you know has has driven it up incredibly high and uh, and it's come crashing down. We've had some uh, some tech bubbles. So let me take you back a little bit about the sectors within the tech sector itself. And so then it's broken down into four components. So it's semiconductors, which is the chips. And we know due to supply issues, the chips have been uh, you know, big in demand and, and that's been struggling, especially in the industries of like uh, travel and vehicles and whatnot. Uh, the second one is software and software development. The third one is network and internet. And the fourth one is hardware. So typically companies that fall within the tech sector are uh, often sold at a higher premium because they're a higher growth oriented company. So if you think about it, if it's a growth oriented company, it's borrowing money because it needs to keep growing. Uh, certainly things like interest rates going up are gonna impact the tech sector for sure. So um, the start of the tech sector um, way back when well included things such as apple google amazon meta netflix uh, can you guys name the oldest technology company in the globe all, that, that is still listed on in the uh, in the
0: nasdaq can you guys name that at all I don't any guess My guess was IBM, but I don't know if that's. Hey, good guess. (laughs) guess. (laughs) IBM
1: has been in business over 108 years and is one of the oldest, oldest tech sector. And it's funny, like, you know, we grew up with IBM. IBM typewriters was the biggest thing, right? And uh, and it's still, you know, uh, listed in in the tech sector and it's kind of grown and, uh, you know, and adapted. Uh, And, of course, there's been companies that haven't adapted in the past (laughs) year. And one I came across that you guys won't even recognize this one. Oh, maybe you would. But Palm, you remember Palm? No. It was founded in 1992. It made the Palm Daytimer. That was the first (laughs) thing. It was so cool. I I think I had one of those, too. (laughs) And they were super expensive, super big. Um, but um, its value at one point was higher than the value of McDonald's and General Motors. Mm-hmm. And then it went out of business in 2011. So often in, 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 these, uh, in the tech sector, you do see companies kind of come in and come out. Like, and and uh, companies that are uh, forward and, and are heavier weighted, such as companies like BlackBerry, mm-hmm. Research in Motion. You know, um, that was a very, very strong company in the tech sector. It it still exists today in a different form, but not as 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 heavyweight. It never as, adapted. Yeah, it didn't adapt exactly. And I think that's the key thing when you're looking at the tech sector. And when trying to invest in the tech sector, it's all about like you know, who is what is the next company that is moving forward and, and gonna make, you know, some some strides. So with that. Often in the tech sector, it's all about enthusiasm. And us as investors, our enthusiasm over the long-term potential help drive that price. And that price doesn't necessarily reflect the true earnings of the company. And that's how we create, and we create them ourselves often, is bubbles. And of course, there's the tech bubble, 1999, 2000, was a big, big tech bubble. And often bubbles will crash, but sometimes they'll just deflate as investors begin to realize that these companies are overvalued. So it's interesting. And and one last sort of point is like Bitcoin obviously is in the tech sector as well. And, And we certainly have seen that and whether or not that's in a bubble, that's up to you to decide. But It it is one of those things that, you know, it is driven often by enthusiasm and not necessarily the actual underlying valuation. So looking at the NASDAQ composite itself, which kind of monitors these large companies uh, based on a, a, a capitalization weighted index, essentially. So the higher value of the company, the more weighting of that company within this composite. And looking back January 3rd, we were at about 15,832, and we dropped as low as 10,646, so 32% drop uh, from January to June of this year, so pretty big hit, um, likely re- related mostly to the, to the interest rates and going up. Again, these are growth oriented companies they are going to struggle uh, with higher interest rates. In addition to the valuations were maybe not as accurate as we we had hoped, you know, that looking forward, as people begin to look at their portfolio, they kind of realize that maybe those companies are not worth what they're trading for currently, and And they begin pulling out of the market.
0: And I think a lot of what we saw this year was um, a lot of tech companies boosted up everything that they were doing through the COVID years. They realized that this was working. They were making tons of money. Look at the companies that did well. Peloton, uh, Zoom, uh, which we may or may not be using right now, right? (laughs) But like these companies that came out and were hiring, look at Shopify, hiring Mm -hmm. lots of people. Their online services were being in in extremely high demand. But what happened is when interest rates started going up, consumer spending started to decrease, and people realized they didn't have the money they had before to spend on these sort of things. The, The desire and the need for the technology of working out at home with your Peloton, you know, having virtual meetings was not as required as it was before, then you realize all those services decrease. And what did these companies do? A lot of them hired a ton of employees, which has now forced their hand as they're going to start losing money if they keep all these employees because there's no demand. So they have to restructure their organizations. And it's almost like they forecasted continued growth but there had to have been a stop somewhere there was such a ramp-up of, of the tech sector throughout covid and and consumer spending especially in those areas that there had to be a slowdown at some point and and we're, we're kind of hitting it now at that sort of um, that that switch people forecasted the markets forecasted it earlier this year and we're seeing the unfortunate layoffs and 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 the fallout from those companies now in in the months that we the last few months and probably in the months to come, as well as the economy continues to slow. Yeah, like a great point. And like
1: just to to put that in perspective, uh, if you look at a chart over the five years, you'll see that the tech, the NASDAQ itself, the composite went down as low as 6,256 back in August 2017. And to this point, like to the beginning of this year, we've almost doubled its valuation and, you know, it it really has grown tremendously. And even if we look back to 2020 uh, at the five-year chart, that sector dropped again back to about 6,200 and just from 2020 climbed back up. So it is... uh, do we want to call it a volatile? Is it volatile? Is it, there's there's a lot of volatility in the tech sector? What do you guys think? I, I kind of think there is because it is, you know, driven a lot by enthusiasm, not necessarily the underlying valuation.
2: Yeah. I've always seen the tech sector as more of the popular kid. Whoever is the most popular gains the most on the stock market, but that doesn't mean that's going to be the popular kid tomorrow. It's very flashy and can be very flashy. I mean, you do have the staple guys like, Uh, your ibms but there's a lot of flashy companies that may not
1: last or might get bought out Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. well let's switch sectors now this is i think we've kind of looked at tech sector it certainly is an exciting thing and and it's certainly going to be around in some form or
0: fashion we just don't know which companies are going to be around yeah exactly so let's let's chat now about uh, sort of the oil and gas sector there and courtney why don't you uh, talk about why it cost so much for me to fill up my gas tank these days.
2: Yeah. Well, if the tech sector is the flashy, popular kid, the oil sector is the old guy on the block, really. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's been around for a really long time and it's not going anywhere anytime soon. But, um, whereas tech sectors is, is, like I said, the, the flashy and whatever's hot, uh, the oil sector is more influenced by politics. I, it's, all about politics, who has the oil, who wants the oil, and uh, how much is out there on the market. So just to kind of give people a perspective of what the oil sector looks like is, we've got this um, group of countries, you've probably heard of the OPEC before. So OPEC, just to give everyone an idea, it consists about 11 countries, mostly in the Middle East, Africa, and then you have Venezuela over in South America and they control about 40% of the oil and natural grasses resources in the entire world and they work together to sort of manage the prices uh, that we pay. For eventually, for what we pay at the gas pump um, so. The reason they do this is because otherwise you, if everyone were allowed to just. Produce as much as they want, is the prices would fluctuate drastically for us. I mean, we right now when you go to the gas pump, it feels like they fluctuate a lot. Um, but it would be nothing, It would be so much more drastic if they didn't control the price. So they with now the there are many factors that sort of um, affecting the oil price right now. And a lot of it is a result of COVID and this current political situations we're dealing with. We've got gas gas shortages in the US and Europe, which are causing the prices to go up. Um, We've got countries and jurisdictions around the world that are trying to lower their taxes on gas and natural resources to try to mitigate these costs, including here in Ontario with Ford trying to lower some taxes to help us out. Uh, We've had various results for that, Um, but we've got, uh, the the, and we've got Russia as well. So Russia might and has threatened to shut off their pipelines to reduce the amount of supply that we have in retaliation for the sanctions that are on them still for their war in Ukraine. Uh, They haven't done it, but they could at any point do that, which would put more pressure on the prices that everyone pays. Um, China is still going through lockdowns, unlike most of the rest of the world too. So some of their factories are either completely shut down or are uh, you know, not working at full capacity. So once they open up, their demand for natural gas is gonna go up, which is gonna cause more pressure on the prices that we see. And the other thing we gotta keep in mind is that we in the Northern hemisphere are about to go into our winter. A lot of people depend on natural gas in order to heat their homes and their businesses, their schools. So the price, there's going to be more pressure. So that's what the we're looking at globally. The good thing or a positive thing to kind of hope on is OPEC is planning on having a meeting in the beginning of September with non-OPEC countries or countries who have oil reserves but aren't in the OPEC, you know, team. So, so to speak, and hopefully they'll come up with a deal. Maybe they'll produce more oil, maybe not, but hopefully something will come of that meeting. Now, when you look, so that's what the political landscape sort of looks like globally. But when you look at Canada and the countries in Canada, we are a resource-based country, oil being one of them. Um, It has been one of the most lucrative years for Canadian oil and natural gas producers, ever, ever. So their balance sheets look great right now. They're rolling and raking in the profits. The question is for investment and looking forward is what are they gonna do with those profits? Are they gonna reinvest in their businesses? They might, Um, some of them have some large debts on the sheets so they'll probably pay those down or even off If they do reinvest, they're probably not as likely to invest in new projects. Uh, you got to remember that in Canada, there's a big push for zero zero carbon emissions. So them getting the approval from the government for new projects is going to be tough. But there is an opportunity for them to invest in zero carbon emission technology and try to broaden the horizons into different areas within their sector. So that'll be interesting to see which companies will do that and which won't. Um, the other thing to keep in mind uh, is that because they're raking in big profits, or so are our governments who are taxing them. So uh, as much as we want to say that we're suffering because of COVID and other, uh, other sources of income, the government is raking in a nice amount of money from these increased prices—that's the, the oil companies are profiting off of. So yeah, yeah. Th- that's a that's a huge picture and a lot <laughs> to talk about. But yes, that's what the oil sector looks like right now. It's very complicated, but I, I hope I uh, explained it well enough for everybody listening to this.
1: Yeah, like I, I think the 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 aspect of the OPEC, which we often feel it's it's you know manipulating you know, the price at the pumps for us. It's very, very similar. And it's really the same thing as any type of supply management program. And we see that in the farming industry, right? The supply management program, when it comes to uh, the milk, uh, eggs, milk, chickens, it's all managed. And that just provides consistency in pricing to the manufacturer, ultimately. Um, but the unfortunate thing in that industry, as you mentioned, it really is a political tool that is used and waved around and, and we suffer from it. And, and that's a sad part of it. And, and these industries, too, you got you to gotta think these big industries in, in the oil sector here, they have so much pressure from the environmentalists yes. to get out of the sector <laughs>
2: But they're so making so much doing. money, so it's yeah. not very, uh, you know. Like,
1: like, you got to get out, and, yeah. and what happens to all these people? And, and it, it's not as if I can turn the switch on and turn yeah. everything into electric yeah. either, right? And so so it, I, I think it's, it's an industry that over the next 10 to 15 years is going to change drastically. Like, I think there's going to be less reliance on the oil sector, but I don't think we'll ever get away from total. No, no. And it's going to be
2: the companies that invest in the new technology and ways of getting to net zero. Those are the ones that are going to come out on top and going to last. It's the ones that are resistant to change that are eventually
1: going to suffer for it. Yeah. And you're going to need deep pockets for that. to Sustain the ups and the downs and the pressures. Right. Uh, as, As the markets
0: go. And, uh, and like as we talked about volatility with technology, well, I think one of the big things with, with oil is it's so susceptible, susceptible to uh, any news, right? Yes. You look at the history and, and it is also weather dependent too. Look at the large oil spills we've had that have affected the price of oil, right? And, uh, and the supply chain you look at, I think it was 2008, the Saudi Arabia over mass produced, they changed the quotas, mass produced a bunch of oil and the, and the price of oil shot. Shot down, right? And so uh, you look at the chart, and even I, I just looked at it with, within COVID. At the peak of COVID, the price per barrel dropped to about $21 a barrel. Well, the price was $21 a barrel back in 1946. So, you know, that just puts into perspective where it's at. And then we spiked back up to over $100 a barrel. So, over five times uh, what it was in COVID just this year, right? And so, and the price of oil also had that same sort of dip back in 1998 as well. So it, it is very uh, news, um, news dependent. And so if there are any triggers, whether it's, you look at the the crisis in Russia right now, which is tightening supply and Russia is really using that in the war on Ukraine right now um, as a, as a political tool, like Europe is extremely dependent on Russian oil and so are you going to go get your oil somewhere else or, you know, are you going to live without the oil and, and so there's a lot of, of twin power that Russia has and unfortunately that affects things more globally as well, in terms of the supply and, and whether it's weather political there's lots of different factors that can impact uh, the way that oil runs.
2: Mm-hmm. which is negative for us at the pumps, but might be positive for Canadian companies if there's a more demand for them because they can't get oil from other places. So it's it's a balancing thing. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Is there a sector out there that's more stable, Brad? <laughs> well, we can hope we <laughs> can- A little bit more stable and not influenced
0: by all these factors. Yeah, well, you know, they may be a little bit more stable but they're still costing us a lot more money this year, that's for sure. And that's uh, the consumer staples uh, sector. Um, And when we talk about consumer staples, you may hear it a lot, especially when we're going through rough times in the economy as we're entering into recessionary, potentially recessionary periods. Um, You have to look at consumer staples and what makes up consumer staples are uh, things we consume on a relatively regular basis, that being beverages, food and staple retailing, food products, household products, personal products, and then even tobacco and alcohol is considered in there as well. Um, and, and those that consumer staples bucket is never really going to change the need for it or for the majority of things in there, right? We're always going to need to put food in our bodies. We're always going to need personal products. And that's why it's considered to be more of a safer haven. And uh, historically, if you look over the years at the consumer staples little basket, it has been very steady throughout the years and it has been one of the best performers in recessionary periods. Um, You know, one of the the biggest pros of this sector is little volatility. So in in times like this, you see investors flocking towards um, these industries because they still know we all have to go to the grocery store, whether, you know, we're all struggling to, to pay bills or whatnot, we still have to get food in our bellies. And that's one of the biggest things. And that is, the bottom line of consumer staples. Now, one of the, the, the t- difficult things with this year is because that's what a lot of people are spending their money on this year and everyone still needs that, the supply chains are still being affected, meaning the inflation's going up. And we saw nine percent, 9.2% inflation on food prices alone in the month of July in Canada. And so that alone is just, uh, you know, proving that it's even more difficult now to get food the industry is still going to thrive. In a year, we've had uh, really poor market conditions. Consumer staples as a whole is only down 0.7%. So uh, you look at it, and it's still there because we need to buy it. But the costs are driving up and and uh, making it more difficult for, for people to make decisions, which will put pressure on some companies in the consumer staples basket. But, uh, you know, your cost effective uh, companies that maybe don't have as much profit may see a lot more activity because your low cost alternatives is what people might be flocking to it during these difficult times but uh, historically compared to technology and oil and gas the consumer staples as it is something that's needed on a regular basis on a daily basis for everyone living uh is is one of your your steady ones there the the one thing you won't see is is any high growth in this area um but uh they will continue to be steady in this um in, in the consumer staples basket
1: yeah, like a, a case in point with like Dollarama, look at yeah. like how that has really got into the market starting as just a dollar store and has become really a staple and they've been able to increase their pricing. So it's no longer a dollar there. It's it's two, it's three, it's four, it's $5 and you pay it. Mm-hmm. And um, areas like that and certainly Walmart and, and a lot of the yeah. food stores, and they really just pass on the, the supply chain issues to us by increasing the prices and we have to pay. We, we, we definitely want. I think, you know, in the end, I think you're right. Like in, in a situation with higher inflation and, like, and we end up with some job losses and stuff, we have to be much more creative in this field and how we're gonna be putting food on the table um, but uh, certainly, companies are are switching a little bit around. Uh, I heard last week that Zellers is coming back. Yeah, I heard I think that too. That is so cool, like Zellers. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I it would be interesting how they're going to kind of roll that out. I think it's going to be somewhat online, and and I think the online aspect has impacted this sector as well because. Mm-hmm. Hey, we can buy it off of Amazon instead of going down the Canadian Tire, right? And and so, uh, and so there's d- different aspects of even this sector that are impacted by technology and the way our uh, our spending habits change.
2: Yeah, and to kind of go along with that, a lot of these companies have started online stores to try to combat Amazon, really, to be competitive. And uh, the ones who don't. I don't know if they're going to stay
0: around, but, but that's where they even run into a bit of an issue where, you know, you look at technology and online spendings dropped this year. A lot of people are going back in person and now they're wondering all the resources they put into that online. Was it actually worth it? Right. You know, for this small little boom, was it worth it? I think grocery delivery is probably here to stay, but like, you know, going back to the tech sector, we had a lot of grocery delivery startups, right. That, you know, we'll deliver your groceries to your front door, drop it off. The grocery stores then started doing that, right? They said, yeah. oh, no, no, we don't want somebody else coming to do it. We want to do it ourselves. And, but then does that increase their cost? You look at Walmart, even like you mentioned, Joe, they're what you would consider a lower cost alternative. But their stock is down a lot more this year and uh, because they're forecasting profits, right? And whether that was internal decisions or just less consumer spending, you know, that might be the technology portion of the store. The TVs at the back are sitting on the shelf, but everyone's just in there buying groceries now, right? So, you know, you look at those big box stores that have your one-stop shop for everything. There's people now shopping in only a quarter of the store because they don't have the, you know, the the additional funds to to spend in the rest of the areas.
1: Do you think at some point we'll get smaller stores? Some of these stores are way massive. Like I, <laughs> I go in for a thing of milk. And I got to walk three kilometers. To <laughs> Costco or no, you go yeah. a liter of milk. I don't get it. And, and, I don't think I can order milk out of uh, Amazon quite yet, but, uh, you know, I grew up in, in the day of, of, um, of home delivery and, and the groceries were delivered. You would go to the store and go to the store with my mother and, uh, And she said, just deliver them, pay for them, pick them all out, pay for them, and then go home. By the time we got home within an hour later, the truck came and delivered the stuff. So, and it's interesting how we're kind of going back to that with having home delivery through companies like Amazon. So it's interesting how all the sectors, you know, certainly influence each other too and have, you know, connections there. And so then that's why we do see like, you know, when a, when a, you know, this year in particular, when a market starts pulling back, as we've seen it, everybody gets affected. And there's really no place to hide in a lot of these cases.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of a really good way to sum it up is how interconnected all these sectors are, right? And I, I think with that last sort of analogy, you've got those grocery delivery companies that are using a technology startup to pick up your consumer staples and deliver them with a gas-powered automobile, right? It kind of, you know, it kind of brings it all together, right? So um, yeah, hopefully that provided everyone with some good background on uh, some of the three different sectors there and and why they, you know, may act a different way, um, whether you've got them in your portfolio or you're just looking at the way things are in the markets or in the economy or even at the pump or the grocery store these days. So, um, thank you very much for listening and, uh, really do appreciate it. And we'll be back with another episode next month. So stay tuned for that. Quintessence wealth Q wealth is a partnership that is registered as a portfolio manager, exempt market dealer, and investment fund manager. The portfolio manager registration allows Q wealth to provide investment advice to its clients. The exempt market dealer registration allows QWealth to engage in trading activity. These services are provided by QWealth through registered advising representatives and dealing representatives, respectively. QWealth is a partnership that is owned by its partners, including KLT Wealth Management. As a client of QWealth, you may receive services from both QWealth and KLT Wealth Management. Note that individuals from KLT Wealth Management will only provide investment advice and trading advice if they are registered as advising representatives and dealing representatives of Q Wealth, and in providing such services, they will do so on behalf of Q Wealth only. KLT Wealth Management may, however, provide wealth management services such as financial planning, estate and retirement planning, insurance, group benefits, and others. Q Wealth Partners is a registered trade name of Quintessence Wealth a registered portfolio manager in Alberta, British Columbia, Manitoba, New Brunswick, Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, Ontario, Prince Edward Island, Quebec, and Saskatchewan, an investment fund manager in Newfoundland and Labrador, Ontario, and Quebec, and an exempt market dealer in Alberta, British Columbia, Manitoba, New Brunswick, Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, Ontario, Quebec, and Saskatchewan. The Ontario Securities Commission, OSC, is the principal regulator for quintessence wealth. Please visit www.qwealth.com for more information.